0: Welcome to BirdWild.com. A podcast for those involved in designing, developing, and running websites. Designing, developing, and running websites. This is what everybody wants to do. This is what everybody waits for. Boag World. Boag World. Hello and welcome to the 74th episode of BoagWorld.com, the podcast for all those involved in designing, developing, and running websites on a daily basis. My name is Paul Boag, and joining me today is Marcus Lillington. Hello, Marcus. Hello,
1: Paul. It's great to be on the show again today. Let me just say how much I appreciate you allowing me to be on your show. Obviously, you are the star because you are the one with all the talent. However, it's still nice to tag along.
0: Okay, I'm not fooling anybody, am I? Marcus isn't on the show this week. But it was worth a try, and for once, I get to put the words in Marcus's mouth, which is always good. Now, unfortunately, Marcus is too busy This week to be on the show. He's got too much to do. And so I thought I'd let him off instead of putting the show back any further this week. Um, next week is going to be a little bit confusing as well, uh, because I'm off to the, uh, future of web design conference up in London, which should be very exciting. And I'm looking forward to that immensely. Um, but it might mean the days for the show's release shift around a little bit. I'm hoping still to get it out on Tuesday, but we will see. Um, talking of the future of web design conference, um, if you're going, or if you're just up in London, then, um, I'm going to be knocking around in London on Tuesday night. And if you fancy doing a bit of an informal last minute meetup, then uh, drop me an email at paul at boagworld.com and we'll arrange to meet up somewhere. Love to see you. Okay, so even though we are without Marcus, we will carry on regardless. Now, the show must go on and all that. So on this week's show, we've got some good stuff lined up for you. We're going to look at the issue of scrolling I guess this is something that comes up quite often with um, with website owners, that they've heard that users don't scroll down pages um, and that there can be all kinds of usability problems if stuff is below the fold. And so they start asking for things like, can we make sure that all of the content sits above the fold? Um, so we're going to look at that issue and whether scrolling is a good thing or a bad thing, um, when it's acceptable, when it's not. And just to share some general good practice about scrolling. We're also going to look at integrating RSS feeds onto your site. More and more people are wanting to add RSS to their website for various reasons. Um, It's becoming a, a growingly popular area. More and more people now understand what RSS feeds are. So we're going to look at some best practice there as well. Um, And in particular, look at a product that should help you integrate those feeds into your site. We're also fortunate enough to have Jonathan Snook on the show today, who's going to be talking about speeding up the development process for server-side applications using frameworks. Now, we've talked about JavaScript frameworks before, but today we're going to talk about server-side frameworks that are used to develop web applications um, and do any server-side kind of processing and things like that. And there are a growing number of frameworks out there to make that process supposedly quicker and easier. And we're going to look at whether that actually works in practice or not. Last up in our client corner section, we're going to look at encouraging goodwill amongst your visitors. So as you have people come to your site, how do you make sure that they perceive not only your website, but your brand in a positive light? So we're going to address that. But of course, before we do any of that, we, as normal, start off with our news. So we're going to start off by looking at Google and what Google are up to this week. I've just got this sneaky feeling Google is slowly turning into Microsoft, disturbing though that is, because... They've picked up Microsoft's habit of picking up on something that somebody else has done and reproducing it and stomping all over people. So what do I mean by that? Well, basically what Google have done is obviously they've had maps out for a long time and you've had the ability to, um, you know, find directions and look up locations and all the rest of it. Really great. And then a lot of very clever people have taken that, and they've um, allowed you to create your own maps for your own websites. They've used the Google API, and they've allowed you to add points and um, you know integrate that with your website and all the rest of it. And in fact, we've reviewed some things like that before in the past. Well, Google have now come along and introduced My Maps, which basically replicates a lot of that functionality. So Google has given users the ability to... Um, Create points on Maps straight from the Google Maps interface, which I guess is a good thing because not everybody knows about these other services that exist out there. But it kind of is a bit of a shame where people have put a lot of work into creating similar services, um, and they're now going to get stomped on by Google. So within Google Maps, you can now add points. You can edit markers. You can even add video, pictures, text, and HTML to the, to the markers. You can create polygons. You can add lines and all that kind of good stuff. And you can um, save those maps out and email them or link to them. However, and this is the big however that really allows those other players still to stay in the game. You can currently embed those maps that you produce directly into the website. So um, I've talked about other services that enable you to do that in the past. I have to say, however, I'm, last time I mentioned a service and people came back to me suggesting a whole load of much better services. Um, and so my current favorite is MapBuilder.net that allows you to do everything that Google Maps now allows you to do using their MyMap service. But also with the addition of being able to integrate that map directly into your website, which of course is perfect for things like contact information and the alike. My next news story was probably the biggest piece of encouragement I've received for a long time and made me feel both happy and joyous. It's the news that according to Boxes and Arrows, um, you don't need to be talented to be a web designer You can imagine my relief to discover this. Yes, there is a lot more to web design than just having a good eye for design, and uh, that was a really encouraging thing to read, and it's a really sensible, good, down-to-earth article that speaks a lot of common sense, and I agree with every word that's said within it. Obviously, talent is important. The ability to be able to um, intuitively know what makes good design and what doesn't, Um, but That is not the be-all and end-all of things. And I I think often we like to talk about design as some kind of mystical art that you've either got or you haven't. And I think designers are kind of the worst at this. You know, it's their way of sneering at, you know, developers or clients or whatever else. But the reality is that there's a lot more that goes into being a good designer, whether that's a web designer or indeed any other form of designer, um, than simply, you know, drawing pretty pictures, The article talks about the need to be able to work quickly and produce a lot of work. The need to to attend to detail and to be on top of all of those little things within a project that often get missed. Um, The need to be versatile in the way that you work and to make an effort to learn new things and keep up with the latest innovations. There's a need to anticipate problems to be able to set goals, and to display a positive attitude. And all of this is so true. I've seen so many web designers that are hugely talented, but are incredibly bad with their attention to detail, or really don't make an effort to keep up to date, and their skills atrophy over a period of time. It's so important that you're more than just a talented graphic artist. You know, we work in a commercial environment in the real world, It's not fine art, and uh, a lot of designers would choose to forget that. So it's a really good article. I highly recommend you check it out, and personally, I found it a huge encouragement because I'm not the best designer in the world. I might joke about it, but I'm not, and if you're in a similar situation to me, then you'll want to read this article too. It'll certainly boost your confidence, let's say that. Next up, I wanted to mention a post that I've seen on Rich Quick's blog. Now, if you haven't come across Rich Quick before, then that's fair enough. But he's actually a very prominent figure within the kind of Boag World community. He posts regularly on the forum. He's one of our forum leaders. And he's also a well-established author in his own right. And has written a book on web design and an introduction to web design, really. Now, the post on his site is interesting because it talks about setting up a web design business and how to go about doing that, which for a lot of you that are listening to this show, I'm imagining is extremely interesting. So he talks about things like the different types of companies, whether you're a sole trader, or a limited company, or whatever. He talks about contracts. He talks about copywriting, bookkeeping, sales, all those kinds of things. Now, most of what he's written is specific to the UK, um, because obviously we have different legislation and rules and all of that kind of stuff. He also tells me that some of it isn't 100% accurate, um, but nevertheless, it is an exceptionally good read. um, And it... You know, it can't go into a lot of detail, but it kind of gets you thinking along the right lines if you're considering either setting up a, a, you know, web design company with a group of you together, or whether you're setting up as a freelancer by yourself. Whichever way, I think you'll find this a very useful article. And that brings us on to our last story of the day, which is really talking about the subject of machine tagging. It seems to be becoming more and more prominent these days, and there's more and more talk about it. And some of the clear left guys have been playing around with the idea of machine tagging. So a machine tag is a tag which is formatted in a specific way to allow programmatic connections to be made. Okay, so what does that actually mean in reality? Well, for example, the kind of events website upcoming.org links specific events to photographs from Flickr when a user enters a special machine tag on their Flickr photographs. So you know that you can tag photographs in Flickr. Well, if you format that tag in a very specific way, it'll be picked up by Upcoming, and Upcoming will then associate those photographs with a particular event. Now, this is done utilizing the power of the API provided by Flickr. So Upcoming calls to the API that Flickr provides um, and pulls back basically any photograph which is tagged specifically relating to that event. Now, there's nothing to stop you doing the same thing on your own blog because there's nothing really special about the relationship between Upcoming and Flickr. Sure, they're, they're actually owned by the same company, but the API of Flickr is open to everybody. So it is theoretically possible to, to use machine tags within your own projects, Sure, you're probably already pulling up your Flickr photographs and displaying them on your blog. You might even uh, manually associate certain photographs with your blog uh, post using manual tags. However, ordinary tags are often too generic, um, uh, and it means that, you can you have to narrow it down to um specifically your own photographs rather than opening up to everybody else's because if you opened it up and pulled back every tag which met the you know the keyword phrase you chose you'd get a load of random stuff that wasn't related to it machine tags are much more specific and allows you to do much cleverer things so like upcoming they pull back every um every photograph from every user If they have that specific machine tag. So basically by using machine tags, you can include other people's photographs or other people can choose to include their photographs in your website. And this is kind of a a really nice concept. And obviously it can be used for a lot more than just photographs. You could use it on any site really that has an API and allows tagging. It's kind of nice, but personally it feels a little bit clunky at the moment. And I'm sure there must be a nicer solution than using machine tags. Because creating a machine tag is not the kind of easiest thing in the world. You know, it has to be formatted in a particular way and it's not particularly intuitive to do. I'm sure somebody will come up with a better approach before too long. But in the meantime, you might want to have a play around with it. And you also might want to check out the article that uh, Jeremy Keith has posted on the subject because it kind of explains it. In it, You know, a lot clearer than perhaps I can do on an audio podcast. So there you go. That's today's news. Loads of stuff for you to look at and uh, check out. And let's move on to our client corner. So in today's client corner section, I wanted to look at the idea of building brand goodwill through your website specifically. And this came about because I've just got a new copy of Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug. And I say a new copy because I've had several before. I keep lending them out to other people and they never come back, which is hugely frustrating, but it's probably a sign of exactly how good this book is. And Steve Krug is basically a usability expert. And if you haven't read Don't Make Me Think, I highly recommend you get hold of a copy. It's incredibly easy reading. He's a very, very good writer. And he says some really down-to-earth sensible stuff. Now, in the new version of the book that I've got, it's got an extra chapter on Goodwill. They've published a kind of revised version. And uh, as I was reading through this, I thought this is really good stuff and I wanted to share it on the show. A website can either... Um, increase or decrease the goodwill that a user has towards a brand. Think of it a bit like playing a game of Sims. If you've ever played Sims, you have to kind of balance these different needs, and you have this little bar that goes up and down that shows whether they're happy or sad or whatever. And it's a little bit like that as people come to your website. They've got this kind of brand goodwill bar, you know, of how they perceive your company, how they perceive what you do. Um, and how they perceive your brand. And that can either go up or down, increase or decrease. So bad decisions on your site can completely drain your goodwill and can ultimately damage your brand. Sometimes you have this attitude of, well, the worst that can happen is that they leave the site and we lose them. But actually, it can be a lot worse than that because it can actually damage how they perceive your company as a whole. And if their goodwill gets so low, they will actually actively criticize your company to other people, which obviously is a bad thing. So goodwill is incredibly important. And we all have a reserve, I guess, of goodwill. That's the way that Steve Krug explains it in his book. Um, So let's do a few different things that Steve Krug mentions about um, that reservoir of goodwill, some features of it. Different people have different size reservoirs, so to speak. So some people are naturally um, very friendly and very um, accepting and very positive, And they have a big reservoir of goodwill. Other people, to be honest, like me, don't have as much goodwill. In fact, we tend to be really cynical off the bat. We get frustrated very quickly and our reservoir is very small. Sometimes people have more goodwill by default than others. And to a large extent, it's dependent on the situation. So for example, if I'm in a hurry, then I have significantly less goodwill than, you know, if I'm kind of sitting around kicking my heels. So the situation also will affect how, you know, how much goodwill you've got in your reservoir, so to speak. You can also refill that reservoir Even if you've made mistakes before, so it's not a kind of one-time deal. You can actually recover people's uh, perception of your brand and the goodwill they have towards you by fixing mistakes. But sometimes a single mistake, if it's big enough, can completely drain your goodwill in one go. So a classic example of that is uh, if you go to a website and there's a massive registration form. In one go, you go, sod it, I I can't be bothered with that, it's too long a form, and you leave, and that's done. So let's look at some of the things that Steve Krug suggests diminishes goodwill. Well, a good one is hiding information that people actually want. And the most classic example of this is hiding phone numbers. So how many sites have you been to where you just want to pick up the phone and you want to ring them, and you get to the site and you search absolutely everywhere before you can find that phone number, or it may not exist at all? Um, A really good example of that for me personally is the Amazon website. I hate the fact that they hide away their telephone number, and I would much prefer to order from a site like Play.com that displays their phone number prominently. Another way of diminishing goodwill is to punish me for not doing things the way that you want me to do them. So a good example of this is entering data in the right format. There's nothing more annoying where it says, your credit card number is invalid. Well, I retype it all over again. Your credit card number is invalid. And again, and the same response. And the reason is, is because I've put spaces in the credit card Number, while the the website wants me to do it without spaces. The same can be true of formatting emails or telephone numbers or anything else. So just because I'm not doing the uh, thing the way that the website expected me to do it, I'm therefore being punished, and that is obviously going to annoy and diminish my goodwill. Another way that goodwill gets diminished is for asking for information that you don't really need We've talked about this before on the show, and it's something that marketeers in particular um, do a lot, that they ask for all kinds of demographic information or even things like email addresses and telephone numbers. where you don't really need it in order to be able to meet my specific requirements on the site. False interest is another way of uh, diminishing goodwill. So what do I mean by that? Well, you think about those times when you pick up the phone um, and you ring some company. And they put you on hold and you sit there and you listen to the annoying music and you're beginning to get a little bit ratty. And then they say, your call is important to us and you want to throw the phone across the room. How dare they say the call is important? to, to You know, they kept me waiting for half an hour and then they have the audacity to say your call is important to us. So that kind of false caring, we think you're really important and we appreciate your feedback. It's just irritating and diminishes goodwill. Putting um, sizzle in the way is uh, one that Steve Krug mentions as a way of diminishing goodwill. Classic example of how he he uses this really peculiar language at times in his book that actually is very funny and entertaining and by sizzle he means things like flash intro or marketing rubbish you know all of that kind of unnecessary clutter that really just gets in the way of me completing my task that can all chip away at goodwill you get several of these things together and it really can put you off of a website and the final thing that can dis, uh, diminish goodwill, according to Steve Krug, is um, when your site is looking unprofessional and it can just knock confidence really that you 're capable of you know delivering um, whatever service or whatever to to you uh, to the end user so make sure your site looks professional otherwise that will damage the way people perceive your brand and perceive your company so what things can increase goodwill and improve the way that people perceive you? Well, no, it's important that you know the main thing that people want to do on your site and you make that obvious. If you ask any website owner, they'll be able to tell you pretty much instantaneously what the main killer app is in, on your site. What's the main reason that people come to your site? But so often knowing that reason doesn't mean that that uh, particular killer application is given the prominence on your website that it deserves. And so there is a real need to make sure that that killer application is really obvious and really easy to get to. And that will help increase goodwill. Also, tell me as the user what it is that I actually want to know. Frequently asked questions are a really good example of this. So often frequently asked questions aren't frequently asked questions. They're questions we want you to ask us, you know, because we'll look good for whatever reason. Frequently asked questions should deal with my problems and my issues and address the particular questions that I have. So um, if you get that right, it can really help to increase my goodwill and my feeling about the website. Steve Krug used as an example of where he was due to fly somewhere and all over the news it was saying, you know, um, there's going to be strikes at, the, you know, on these airlines, blah, blah, blah. And so he went along to his airline website to see whether the strike was going to affect him. And there was nothing about that information. You know, there was no indication that there was going to be a strike. And that's a classic example of not telling users what obviously is uh, going to be the big question that they have on their minds at any particular time. Another way of increasing goodwill is to save um, me steps in achieving my goal. So any way that you can kind of remove obstacles or remove Hoops that the user has to jump to through in order to achieve their goals is a good thing. Put in, uh, put in the effort as well is a good way of increasing goodwill. Users can tell if you've really made the effort on a website. It's the little things that count that shows that you're really trying and putting in that effort. And that can really go a long way with how users perceive you. Um, another thing is to provide me with the creature comforts on the website things like a nice print version again it goes back to that devil the devil is in the detail thing that you know the more thought you put in the more people are going to appreciate that and respond to that another thing is to make it easy to recover from errors and it, it doesn't matter how much um, usability testing you do you you know okay you might kind of spot and fix the majority of errors that people are going to um, encounter but there's always going to be something people users are always going to get confused on a site and providing them with easy ways to recover from those errors is absolutely crucial. Little things like an obvious link back to the home page to allow users to start again, that kind of stuff. Um, it just helps for use to you know to encourage users that the site is easy to use. But when in doubt, this is kind of an overall message for as far as increasing goodwill. When in doubt apologize so if there are situations where you know that what you're doing is not the most intuitive and easy to use thing but because of technical constraints or business constraints or whatever else you're kind of forced to do it that way then just be up front with the user actually say look we know this isn't the best way of doing things we apologize if it's taking you a, a little bit longer to achieve your goal saying sorry completely uh, takes the wind out of people if, um, who are looking to criticize. Um, and it is also an exceptionally good way of increasing goodwill. So there you go. There's a few tips um, about the subject of goodwill. It's a really good um, section in Steve Krug's book, Don't Make Me Think. And again, if you haven't read that book before, get hold of a copy. You won't regret it. Next up is our Ask the Expert section, and this week we're lucky enough to have Jonathan Snook on the show. If you haven't come across Jonathan before, he's an exceptionally good developer, Um, and you can find out more about him at snook.ca. And uh, I wanted to talk to him about server-side frameworks. I know a lot of you guys out there are are doing a lot of server-side development, database stuff, web applications, etc. And um, we talked about before about client-side frameworks, you, you know, JavaScript libraries, that kind of stuff. But I wanted to look at, at server-side frameworks um, and whether they really do help you uh, develop web applications quicker and easier, what their advantages were, and what their drawbacks were. So this is what Jonathan had to say on the subject. So the common question that I often get is, which framework should I use?
1: Although before we get into that, uh, the question is, what is a framework? And Wikipedia says it's a defined support structure in which another software project can be organized and developed. Uh, So basically it provides a structure and uh, possibly more importantly these days, a methodology for your projects. uh, And should really be handling the more menial tasks of development, leaving you to focus on domain-specific issues. Um, so why or why not use a framework? Um, I mean, much of the hard work is already done for you. That's that's a huge benefit. But on the downside, you might not understand how much of the magic works. Uh, and if something goes wrong, you've got an additional layer in which the error might be occurring. You know, is it the database? Is it the web server? Is it the framework itself? Um, or the language that the framework is built upon? You know, it's always a good idea to have a greater awareness of any technology that you use so that when something does go wrong, you know how to fix it. And another big downfall is essentially trying to pick the winning horse before entering the race. Now, which framework will ultimately serve your needs? Um, considering the multitude of frameworks out there, how do you know going in that a framework is going to save you time and not lead to hours, if not days of frustration? And luckily, the past couple of years has seen a few leaders emerge in the marketplace. Uh, So even with the few leading the pack, how do you decide which framework to use? Uh, Of course, the reasons depend heavily on your situation. You know, what programming languages are you comfortable with? Uh, What are your hosting requirements? Um, You know, how big is your team? What languages do they develop in uh, that they're going to feel comfortable going in? And, you know, there's a number of popular ones out there right now. Uh, Django, which is running off Python. Uh, We've got Ruby on Rails, which is obviously running off Ruby. Uh, PHP has a number of frameworks which are um, still gaining a popularity. Things like CakePHP, CodeIgniter, Symfony, Uh, Zend, um, the people behind PHP itself, um, are putting together a framework. And so there's there's just so many out there. And a lot of it's going to depend on what you or your developers are comfortable in programming in. So if your developers are programmers within PHP, that they're focused on learning the framework and not learning on the language as well. And if you're just starting out, then maybe you can have that flexibility to jump into sort of the latest and greatest. You know, maybe you want to learn Python and learn Django at the same time. Maybe you want to hop into Ruby and learn Rails at the same time. And you have that kind of flexibility when you're really jumping into it, or you have the time to focus on these things. If you're just jumping in to a project, you know, the boss comes in and says, okay, well, we've got to build this site in a week you don't really have that kind of time to spend learning a new language and learning a new framework at the same time, which is why I think a lot of people and a lot of companies really just have their own framework that they've put together um, from project to project. They've added new pieces of code over time and it really works well for them because a lot of that comes from the familiarity with the code they've put together. And that goes back to what the point I was saying before is that you really have to have a good awareness of, What's running your site? Because if something does go wrong, you got to be able to know how to fix it. You know, the, going back to the original question, which framework should you choose? You know, if you've got the time to invest in a framework, uh, by all means, hop in because it does take care of a lot of the grunt work for you and you are going to save time in the long run. Don't be as concerned about following the standard way of doing things just dive in build a project with it and from that you'll get to know the framework you'll get to build your own style within that framework Uh, i know when i had uh, first started getting into kphp i was like well is this the right way to do it no no, if it works then it's the right way because ultimately what you're trying to do is solve a problem and your problem shouldn't be am i doing it the right way just do it make sure it works and then go back and use that as a learning experience for the projects moving forward. And that's all you can do.
0: So thanks, Paul, for letting me be on the show. Thank you very much. No, thank you, Jonathan. Great stuff. Thanks very much. I appreciate um, you taking the time to come on the show and explain that to us. It's all very useful stuff. Okay, next up, the Agony Uncle section. And so this week's Agony Uncle section is going to be on the concept of scrolling. Is scrolling really a bad thing or not? And this comes actually from a post that Ronald made on our forum. And he said, I'm currently in the middle of a redesign of a corporate website. Part of the redesign is updating the look and feel of our main site and also updating the forms and surveys and the like when briefing both concepts I heard from separate people oh you don't want to allow users to scroll that's a bad thing so I'm asking you guys and girls is scrolling such a bad thing I thought this was such a good question that it was worth including on the show and um, scrolling is has always been a bit of a contentious issue and, and not, not everybody agrees on the subject and I think a lot of clients are kind of have a slightly out-of-date perspective on this. But let's lay some absolute ground rules first. First of all, horizontal scrolling is bad. It is not good and should be avoided. Well, almost an absolute statement. Um, There are actually some good horizontal scrolling websites. Um, But I think the key here is horizontal scrolling is okay. Vertical scrolling maybe is okay. We're going to talk about that in a minute but certainly not in both directions at the same time. That's where the problem is. So I've seen some nice horizontal scrolling websites that just scroll horizontally instead of vertically. And maybe it's a bit confusing, but in certain situations it looks cool and works well. But generally speaking, I think we need to establish that horizontal scrolling is a bad thing. Now, vertical scrolling has always been seen and perceived as a major problem, especially amongst clients. It's one of the few things that clients have in their head as being a bad thing. Now, um, this comes from the fact that Jacob Nielsen uh, wrote a long, long time ago that people didn't use and weren't familiar with the concept of scrolling. They found scrolling very, very difficult. And for some reason, this is kind of stuck in the consciousness of website owners everywhere. However, even in 1997, Nielsen was reporting that scrolling was becoming less of a problem. And I think basically we're now in a world where fundamentally uh, uh, most users are now familiar with the concept of scrolling. You know, they will scroll up and down a page to look for additional content. And so I think, generally speaking, you can argue that vertical scrolling is not a major issue ever, uh, anymore. However, scrolling does still cause problems for some users. Those with motor skill problems, the elderly, those with learning difficulty that, um, that struggle to picture where they are on a page, they find context very difficult. And so if your audience kind of encapsulates any of those groups, then you need to think twice about scrolling because it can cause problems for some users. Um, So just because scrolling in theory is okay doesn't mean you can now just ignore it as an issue and you can ignore the fold as an issue, the fold being that point where the user has to start scrolling. It's still important to ensure that key content is kept above the fold because that's the things that people are going to use um, first. And that is going to judge whether or not they actually bother to scroll the rest of the page. Users users make judgments about the value of a site based on the content that exists above the fold. If you're still worried that people aren't finding content deeper down your page, then try a product like crazyegg.com. That allows you to actually see heat maps of of where people um, have clicked on a page and, and that kind of thing. So you can see whether people are clicking on content that's lower down in the page. But there are, there are some other general principles relating to scrolling that are worth mentioning. And one of those is don't mess with the scroll bar. Too many users like to, oh, sorry, sorry too many web designers like to mess around with the scroll bars for one reason or another. They like to change the colors of them or um, they're using a, a Flash application where they can do whatever they want to the scroll bars. Keep your scroll bars as standard as possible. And also, when you, if you're building a scroll bar for, you know, a web application using Flash or, or whatever, then make sure that that scroll bar conforms to the behavior that users are familiar with when it comes to scroll bars. So things like um, you should be able to click in the trough of a a scroll bar to get it to jump to that particular part of the the page. You should allow users to click on the arrows, obviously. You should allow them to drag the slider up and down, and also to use the scroll wheel if they're using a mouse. All of those things are fundamental to the way that users scroll on a website, and yet so often, especially in Flash applications, those kinds of things are ignored. Where possible, also avoid multiple sets of scroll bars. For example, um, it's very possible with CSS to have scrollable divs and actually have individual parts of the page scrollable. And although in some circumstances this is all right, I've also seen it cause um, a lot of confusion in usability testing. So generally speaking, it's better to avoid it where possible. On longer pages, make use of anchors at the top of the page to allow users to jump down to specific parts of content without having to fiddle around with the scroll bar that can also often be difficult to use. Making your design fluid can also help reduce the amount a user has to scroll. So instead of going for a fixed width site, consider going for a scalable site instead. When working on web applications that have got a lot of data entry, consider using paging instead of scrolling. Um, so, for example, when you're returning a load of records from a database, um, don't list them all on one enormous page, but split them o- over multiple pages and use paging to move through them. Or if there's, a lot, as I said, a lot of data entry, a form to fill in, then split that across multiple pages instead. Also, finally, you might want to consider allowing the user to expand or collapse areas of content in order to um, help them reduce the amount that they're scrolling. So hopefully, Ronald, that helps answer your question and gives you an idea of how to deal with scrolling and whether you even need to avoid it or not. I guess, in summary, scrolling is fine these days. I don't think there's any problem with vertical scrolling whatsoever. If you're going to do anything out of the ordinary, like horizontal scrolling or like messing around with the scroll bars, then you really need to think twice before doing that, as it can cause problems. And finally, remember your target audience. Some users find scrolling particularly difficult, and in which case you might want to do something slightly different. Okay, so before we wrap up today's show, I want to do a quick review of a product called Feed Digest, which is... um, at feeddigest.com. It's an online web application. And I have actually mentioned it in passing before when I was talking about Yahoo Pipes. But basically, it allows you to do some really cool stuff with RSS feeds. Just some of the stuff that it it allows you to do includes combining multiple feeds. Um, You know, if you want to make one master feed Made up of lots of different feeds, you can do that with Feed Digest. And it even allows you to bulk input large numbers of feeds together. It allows you to filter your feeds as well based on search criteria, looking for duplicates, that kind of thing. Um, And you can set up the number of results that are displayed in your feed at any one time. You can set the sort order of your feed. But where it gets really interesting is in your ability to output that feed. So obviously, you can output your master feed as an RSS feed, but you can also output it as JavaScript, HTML, or WAP, which basically means that you can format your feed um, and output it onto your website if you want to. Which obviously is quite exciting because a lot of people, you know, want to take various feeds and include them on your website um, in order to kind of, you know, highlight various news stories or whatever. You can have numerous reasons for wanting to do it, but it's very useful. You can also format the way that that output looks. So it's got a basic set of templates that you can use to output your content, but you can also customize these um, entirely, you know, and completely under your control. So you really can output that HTML in any way that you wish. And Now, I've looked extensively at loads of similar services to this, and this one is by far the best. It's something I often have to do for clients, and so I've spent quite a long time looking at what's around. Um, it's the best third-party application that's out there. Now, you can build your own um, RSS parsers and all of that kind of stuff, but a lot of people can't be bothered with that kind of thing and don't have the time for it. Now, it's not entirely free. There is a free service which allows you five um, feeds uh, uh, to be inputted, uh, five different digests, um, and then ten items. But they've got a whole range of different paid levels up from that right up to an enterprise level, which costs an absolute fortune but allows you to do loads of stuff. Chances are it's going to cost you something like $49, $50 a year, not a huge amount of money. In my opinion, is extremely good value for money and takes a lot of the hassle and work out of putting an RSS feed on your website. So if you want to check that out, go along to feeddigest.com. Okay, so that about wraps it up for today's show. But I figured it would be wrong not to go without one of Marcus's jokes. So here you go. Here's Marcus's joke for the day.
1: Thanks, Paul. This week's joke comes from a geek joke website sent in by Pete. In actual fact, it isn't so much a joke as a gem of profound wisdom. A computer lets you make more mistakes faster than any invention in human history. With the possible exceptions of handguns and tequila. Profound stuff.
0: Is it just me, or is computer-generated Marcus actually funnier than the real thing? I know you agree. Shh, don't tell him. It'll upset him. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to today's show. As normal, um, please feel free to send your comments or suggestions to paul at boagworld.com. Check out the forum at boagworld.com forward slash forum, and you can get at all of the links from today's show in our show notes at boagworld.com forward slash podcast. Select episode 74. Finally, I wanted to give a quick mention to a website that I've recently come across called iStalker.com. That's i s t a l k r.com. And it basically allows you to take all the various RSS feeds that you have about yourself so your twitter feed your delicious feed your flickr feed your blog feed all the rest of them combine them together into like a life stream of all the different uh things you're doing and saying and talking about and so other people can then stalk you which is a good idea so if you wish to stalk me then check out istalker.com forward slash users forward slash boag world thanks very much for listening talk to you again soon goodbye